0: Hey, what's up, guys? You're now listening to Devo with Uncle Theo. Today is day 24, and we're going to be covering Exodus 19 through 21. So let's hop right into the text. Today, I get to recap one of the most important passages of Exodus. God gives Israel their purpose. So it says in verse one, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. All right, now, so God is about to start speaking to Israel, and he's going to give them their purpose. First, he says, verse 4, How I bore you on eagles' wings. And obviously, we know an eagle, which represents both swiftness and power. And the reason this is important, because it's going to set up for a string of texts, like Psalm, 103, Isaiah 40, all are built on Exodus. Even when Isaiah quotes it, you will mount up like eagle wings and soar. What is he saying? The same God that got you through the first Exodus will get you through the second Exodus. He will do it a second time. And in light of this, I will keep my covenant with you, which leads us to verse five and six. And here's the purpose of Israel. And the reason we should pay close attention to this is because this is our purpose too. Peter reinstates this in first Peter. And so let's look at this. It says that you will be my possession, my own possession. What does that mean? It means you will be a treasure to God that he will love you like his most valued possession. He will put his passion and focus toward you. And it says among all the people. What does that mean? He loves you more than he loves everyone else. He set his affection on you differently than he set on everybody else. And he's telling Israel that, and they've seen this. He hadn't set his affection on them like he set it on the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites. He set it on them differently, for all the earth is mine. He's saying, look, I could have done this with anybody, but I've chosen to do this with you. And he says that you shall be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Let's break those two things down. So kingdom, royalty, and priests. Kingdom, which is royalty, and a priest mediates between God and people. And so they are to have the highest relationship with Yahweh. They are to push people and pull people to them. Now, Now you see why the law is important. It's not just to teach Israel. It's to teach the whole world because they are to be a kingdom of priests, which means they're to be a witness in nation. First, they have to be holy. They have to get the law down, and they're to teach this and to make an international impact. What God was doing through them, how He reached Jethro, how He reached the rabble, the mixed multitude, He's modeling to them what they're to do when they learn God's ways. They're to the continue this as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and holy nation. How are they to lead people? They must be a holy people. They are to live out the Torah and model it for the people. This is a play off of the Sabbath. What did he do? He made it holy. And so God saying, just like the Sabbath, I'm consecrating you and making you holy, which means that if rest is supposed to come through you and if I'm supposed to enjoy you forever, You must be holy. This is their purpose. And this is why we can't reduce what we're about to see to a bunch of rules and a bunch of laws. It was never meant to do that. It was meant to teach, not meant to say. And so now we get Israel's core values. Their core value come from Abraham. He's the father of faith. So Israel's core value is faith. They must be a people of faith. Their core value is faith. They learn that they have a God who turns evil to good. They learn that they have a God who fights for them. And now they're to model this for the rest of the world. And he says, if you keep my covenant, why does he say that? He's introducing the Mosaic covenant. And if we can understand the law, you can understand the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is like a managing or a administrative covenant. It manages promises. Paul tells us this, it's like a tutor, a tutor that has privileges to, to discipline you and train you and shepherd you where you need to be. And this is why we'll start to see this language a lot throughout Leviticus, do this and you will live, do this and you will live. And so you quite naturally hear that and say, live eternally, or does this give me salvation? No, it doesn't do that. But if you Obey God within this system and you look to what it points to, you will live and have eternal life. If you allow the law to shepherd you properly and allow it to manage you and administer you to the proper one, which is the lawgiver. But if you get caught in the cycle and the law becomes an end in itself, you miss out and it doesn't accomplish its purpose. And Moses is going to say, there will be a day where a new prophet will come and, and everything I'm teaching you will be fulfilled. The life preserving sign points to a life preserver. The teaching points to a teacher. And therefore, when the teacher arrives, you need to obey him. So the law wants to make a handoff. Like a baton. It wants to hand the baton to Christ and we must catch it. And so we'll start to learn here that the law is a language. The law communicates. We're going to see things in the law, do not love sexual immorality. Like the law is going to start taking blood seriously. God is about to start communicating a few things. He's going to communicate certain commands and certain prefaces. And this is what we'll have to learn about the nature of the law. God is gonna ask Israel to do certain things that fall under his prefaces, which are a command of preference, which doesn't necessarily attach to morality. This is just how God wants things done as their king. But there are cert- certain commands that'll be attached to morality, which means these reflect God's character, whether inside the covenant or outside the covenant, these cannot be violated. But with inside this managing covenant, These are prefaces that I have, and these are why the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws become important. And you will start, if you can understand those compartments within the law, it'll help you to understand how the law works. So there's a what in the law principle, and there's a why in the law, God's character, which is why we say one is the letter of the law, and the other is the spirit behind the law. So we need a few examples, and that's what we're going to look at now in the Ten Commandments as we walk into chapter 20. So God is giving the covenant. The mountain is smoking. They are the stone or shooter arrow if somebody gets too close. And you see the context developing here. Why don't you get close? You don't get close to this thing. You don't get close to this mountain because someone holy is here, and we have to respect and revere his holiness. So think about this again. We talked about the 10 times God spoke in creation. Then we talked about the 10 plagues. And now what are we about to get? We're about to get 10 commandments. And quite naturally, God is showing us that he's pointing us back to creation because he's the creator. And when he created, everything was good and very good. And he wants us to get back to that state. So God is producing an anti-fall nation. We're going back to Eden. We need to get back to Eden when everything was very good. And I want to get my creation back to rest. But in order for us to get there, we must be holy. So the first order of business is in verse three. In order for us to get there, you cannot have any other guys before me. I establish myself as the only God. I took out the world's first superpower. I took out all of the other gods. I occupy the highest position. I'm exclusive. I'm central. So of course you're not to have any other gods. And I want this to sink in into our DNA. When we say that Jesus is the only way, we aren't trying to be offensive. We're saying, no, that is the only conclusion God has throughout human history shown that he's the most high God, and that he belongs in a category of his own, and we're simply worshiping him when we do that. We're not leading with defending God. God can defend himself. He's done that. He's a warrior. We are worshiping him because he deserves that spot, and when we claim his exclusivity, that is a form of worship. And so quite naturally, you don't make any images in heaven or the earth below. This is creation language. Nobody can go up above to get to God, hence the Tower of Babel, and nobody can bring God down to them. So don't make images. He's in a category of his own, so we don't try to bring him down, or we don't try to get up to him. We allow him to articulate what he desires, and we love him and worship him. Based on his prescription. So we don't modify God. We maintain a clear distinction between the creator and the creation. Now, there is a comment here that says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And this causes a lot of people problems to say, why does God punish the children of the sins of the father? He really doesn't. What he does is he punishes the children who hate me, who continue in the sins of their father. He's not just out here, reckless abandonment and just punishing people for the sake of the sins of others. The children are continuing in the sins of the father. And so that punishment is following into the next generation because they're walking in the ways of their parents. And so we have to get that distinction there. Number three, do not take the Lord's name in vain. He's revealed himself as Elohim in Genesis 1. He's also revealed his character and his name, and we're not to take that in vain. And taking God's name in vain isn't merely using his name as replacement for a curse word. It's not respecting who he is and what he's commanded. So when we don't follow the word of God, we're taking his name in vain. We're saying what he's prescribed to us, is not worthy of doing, worthy of upholding. And so remember the Sabbath. And this also connects back with what? Creation. Remember God's agenda? He worked for six days and he rests on the seventh. And you are to exhibit this to the world because the world is going back to Eden. God's glory is going to fill the earth. And so you, Israel, exhibit this. When people look at you and and they say, why do they rest on a seventh day? It's because Yahweh created the earth, and he rested on the seventh day. And when we see Israel, we see God. And so now we move from one through four, which are vertical commands, to if you get the vertical right, now you can get the horizontal right. And first, quite naturally, we start with the children. Honor your mother and father. What did God always want them to do? Teach their children. When you cross the Red Sea, teach your children what God did here. When the manna came down from heaven, put an omer full in a container and teach your children what God has done. This is why we set up authority. And I think there's something significant in the language of honor your mother and father. That word honor, kavod, is the same word for glory. And so God says his glory he will not give to another. Why is this beautiful thing that he will not give to another? that Christ is the only one he receives. He trusts his parents with this glory. The reason he trusts parents with this glory is because they're the first example of an authority that they'll ever see in his life. And he is entrusting his parents to be his moon and reflect that glory back to him, to the sun. And so we should be good glory bearers as parents and reflect any glory that God has given us back to Him. And when children obey us, they're learning, they're practicing how to obey Yahweh, which is why we're to model Him and to be kind, to be gracious, to be gentle, to be patient, to be long-suffering so they can see an example of, wow, this is what a good mother and father looks like. And when you hand that glory back off the Yahweh, you put your kids in the prime position to obey God. And when they obey God, they're quite naturally going to obey the other authorities, like the government and their conscience. And we're setting things up to run well. But one trick of the enemy is he wants to break this down. If he can break the authority principle down, he wins. So if you remove the parents from the home, particularly the father, you destroy authority. And so now, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life can run rampant. You can live recklessly and be rewarded for it. And now all these problems can exacerbate, and nobody knows why. Everybody's trying to medicate it. Everybody's trying to cure the symptoms. But it's an authority issue that started from home. And if we were to train our children well, this would eradicate majority of these problems. So that's why we have to be strict with our kids and shepherd them generally, because this is to shepherd them into a handoff. So number six, no murder. Why don't we murder? Because we preserve life. Death came when? After the fall. God is saying to Israel, getting them to see we are an anti-fall nation. We are an anti-death nation. We are opposed to what happened in Genesis 3. We're trying to get back to Genesis 2, where everything was good. So there will be no murder. There will be no adultery. We will be pure and holy. We're pro-holiness. There will be no stealing. We won't steal. Who stole? Who were the first thieves? Adam and Eve, they stole from the tree. So we won't steal. We won't bear false witness. That's a perversion of justice. We won't lie like who? Adam did. You're an anti-fall nation. We will not be like what happened in Genesis 3. Then number 10, we won't covet like who? That's the exact same word of what Eve did when she desired the tree. That's the word covet. So what's the opposite of covet? It's being satisfied. It's being content, which is why Paul preaches this. He says, when you master contentment, you master the Christian life. Because the opposite, the evil twin of contentment is coveting. And if you're not coveting, you're content and you're satisfied in God being your portion. Christ is enough for you. So we're to be opposed to the false agenda, which is why we have one through four vertical and five through 10 horizontal. They parallel one another and God is going to give them their instructions for building the tabernacle. And it's going to be quite interesting how the tabernacle is going to look. When we look at the imagery here, guess what it's going to look like? It's going to look like creation. The top is going to be blue. What does that represent? The sky. There's going to be trees and olive oil and lampstand. And this is the point. Israel, I'm taking you back to Eden. And the People in ancient Near Eastern times would have recognized it. Why do their stuff look like creation? It's because their God is the true creator. He's the most high God, and He's taking them back to Eden. Come along, join with them, allow them to teach you what the purpose of all of this is, and use the law to shepherd you back to the lawgiver. And this is the beauty of what Israel had at the time, which is why we move into the laws. And so the 10 commandments, the 10 words are basically an abstract. And if you know about paper writing, your abstract tells you what your paper is about. So the 10 commandments tell you what the rest of the laws are about. And when you break the laws down, you have 613 laws, you have 365 negative laws, and 248 positive laws. And what we're about to see is that fleshed out. And we'll see that. In the rest of chapter 20 and in 21, we even get a note in verse 19 where the people say, look, Moses, you speak to us, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. They become afraid and God is showing them and teaching them his holiness. And this will be a good exercise for you if you're walking through all of these laws to say this is case law. I wonder which law this points back to or which one this goes with. And for instance, chapter 21, verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Which one does that go back to? That's number six, do not murder. And so now we're seeing that case law fleshed out and how to fully operate in the 10. And another argument here, if you look at verse 22, it says, if men struggle with each other, And strikes a woman with child so that she prematurely gives birth, yet there is no injury. He shall surely be fined. He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand from him. And he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. And I think this really drives home the abortion debate, whether a fetus is a person. God is treating a fetus like a person. He's saying that someone should be held accountable for its death or its injury, a life for a life. And God gives us one of the clearest arguments that human life is valuable from not only the womb, but to the tomb. And we'll start to work through these laws more and try to see how they point back to the 10. But I want you to understand that these laws teach, and it should always point us back to the lawgiver. And Israel should have modeled that to say, hey, we serve the most high God that declared war on the false gods and won, and we will never put anybody else in his category. And he's going to get us back to rest. He's going to get us back to Genesis 2. And we are an anti fall nation, and we are about to proclaim that to the world. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation. That's our purpose. And let's see if they succeed in that. You all take care. Yeah.